Mr. Rogers had a way of connecting with people far beyond his demographic of children. Journalist Asia Burns notes that the emergence of the Fred Rogers uh, as a television host seemed very counterintuitive. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood debuted in the heat of the Vietnam War a month after the Tet Offensive began. It ran every weekday throughout the rest of 1968 through the My Lai Massacre that March and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy in June and April, respectively. That program ran for 33 years. One media expert had this to say. It said, Mr. Rogers bookended his program between the beginning of 1968 and just before the September 11 attacks. He took American childhood and I think Americans in general through some very turbulent and trying times. You almost always see the phrase, look for the helpers trend during major catastrophes. Most recently, people shared that widely during the shootings recently in El Paso and Dayton. We are in the midst of some very challenging times in our culture. I think that's obvious. And here's just a quick sample of some of the things that we're facing. We're on the brink of one of the most polarizing elections we've faced in a long time. In my opinion, I think this is going to make 2016 look mild. We have an ongoing opioid epidemic that is ravaging certain parts of our country. And closer to home, a recent report ranks Kentucky as the number one state in the nation for child abuse. But the crazy things, while they're causing frustration, the crazy things out there, they only tell part of the story. Because for many of us, the challenges are much closer to home. Crazy isn't just out there, it's in here. Many of you are here today, and you're in a difficult season. And some of you, if you're honest, you feel trapped and forgotten. Let me share this verse with you to start off. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the hope and the promise for those who are in Christ And I know some of you are a bit skeptical when you hear that verse, maybe even a bit jaded because of all the things that you've seen in life or all the things that you've been through. And you're asking, Kevin, how exactly is God working for me in my situation? And here's what I know for sure. Many of you, and I know this personally, are going through some major stuff. In fact, just before service a little while ago, I had a conversation in the hallway someone going through some heartbreaking and devastating things. And on top of the pain and on top of the pressure, you're trying to make sense of all that's that's going on. What is happening? Today, we're going to hear from someone who knew about the crazy that was going on out there in the culture of his day. But he also had a comforting word for the believers who were experiencing the crazy in their own lives. And today I want you to see from God's word that in the midst of trials and suffering, God sees and God cares. And with God, nothing is wasted. Because when you find the helpers, you'll know there's hope. My big idea for the message today is very simple. We get help so we can give help. Today I want to look at a text that I will believe 
uh, it's going to encourage us. I believe it's going to challenge us. And ultimately, my hope is that it's going to transform us. My text today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And before we dive into the text, let me just give you a little bit of background. Uh, as we've heard before, in, in contrast to some of Paul's other letters that have a more logical, organized structure, 2 Corinthians reads almost like Paul's personal diary or a journal. It's, it's free-flowing. It covers many different theological topics. It's easily Paul's most personal and emotional letter. The tone ranges from pain to enthusiastic to vigorous. But without a doubt, the one thing that overflows from 2 Corinthians is Paul's love for the church there. And the language sounds very much like a father speaking to his children. 2 Corinthians 2, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He writes to protect them. He writes to lead them. He writes to remind them of who they are and to help them keep their eyes focused on what's most important. And one of the challenges that Paul is addressing in 2 Corinthians is the presence of what he calls later super apostles who were teaching a false gospel. They were teaching about a different Jesus. Now, with that background, let's go to our text today. 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort in salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The first thing that I want to look from this passage today is the source of comfort. The source of comfort. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Paul begins this passage with praise to God. And he, he's doing this in a way that was very common in the Old Testament, as well as in first century Jewish liturgies. Now, this blessing would have been very familiar to Jews who attended the synagogue at that time. But Paul reshapes this blessing with a distinctively Christian tone and references the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jewish fathers, is now known as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, this verse is bursting with a beautiful theological picture of who God is and what God does and what He's like. See, God is knowable in a personal and intimate way, and He, he, and he cares for us, which is very different from almost any other description of, of who God is. See, God's not a, a cosmic force like in Star Wars. He's not the God of Greek Platonism, which was indifferent to human suffering and pain. And there are a lot of misrepresentations and misperceptions about God and who He is and what He's like. And we know that Jesus is also known as Emmanuel, God with us. Stick with me because this is very important. One of the most important things we must do in our walk with the Lord is to get the issue of God's character settled in our hearts and in our minds before the storms of life hit. Because I'm going to tell you, when you're in the midst of crisis or tragedy, and when you get that phone call, you don't have, you don't have time to think about the character of God. Pastor Carol did a wonderful job last week of unpacking the process of the fall with Adam and Eve. And one of the things that hit me again out about that account wasn't just the disobedience. It was the lack of trust. They didn't understand God's heart. And one of the reasons this opening verse is so powerful and is so helpful is Paul is speaking here. He's not speaking just out of head knowledge and theology, but he's speaking out of personal experience. And as we heard recently, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God is knowable in a very personal and intimate way. He's the father of mercies, of compassions, which conveys the character in the heart of God. That's who he is. Next, Paul describes God as the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. This is what he does. This is how he acts towards his children. Now, just a side note here. Comfort here is the same root word that Jesus uses to refer to the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper or comforter to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's important to know that as born-again disciples of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, living on the inside of us. Now, Paul is laying here an important foundation about God's character as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort that sets us up for the next part of his letter. The purpose of comfort. God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, in our passage today, the word comfort appears nine times. 
affliction four times and sufferings three times. Paul is trying to communicate that there's a direct relationship between suffering and comfort, and he wants us to understand that. So the question isn't if sufferings and trials are coming our way, but rather when. One of the areas of life where there's an abundance of information on best practices uh, is the area of parenting. Uh, As a parent, I'm always looking to improve. I want to be a better father, and there's so many good and thoughtful people out there uh, with great resources, whether it's to strengthen uh, your discipleship in your home, uh, how to do devotionals. It's very important. A big topic in our house these days is how to manage and balance technology and screen time. Um, But along with strategies and tactics on parenting, I'm always curious about the the big picture philosophy, the big picture uh, 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 thinking on on what's what's happening, what's trending in parenting. And about a year ago, an anonymous uh, article by a teacher went viral, uh, and the title of the article was, Lawnmower parents are the new helicopter parents, and we are not here for it. Now, the article comments that while helicopter parents are known for hovering over their kids and, and keeping a close eye on their every move, lawnmower parents are out there paving the way, right? Lawnmower parents go to whatever uh, lengths is necessary to prevent their child from facing adversity, struggle, or failure. And instead of preparing children for challenges, they mow obstacles down so kids won't even have to experience them in the first place. Now, here are some examples of what teachers are dealing with. Quote, a fourth grader's mother told our school secretary she needed to blow on her daughter's soup at lunch in case it was too hot. (laughs) Next, uh, I caught a student cheating on a test. His dad called that night and explained to me that it would be unfair for me to take points off of his grade for cheating because that would lower his grade. All right, and this one. After a struggling student of mine stood me up for three study sessions, his father called and asked to schedule a conference. When I arrived at the conference, the dad stood there in his business suit, glared, and told me that he owned a $30 million company, how his son would succeed in school, and that I would change the grade to 100% regardless of his previous scores. It's crazy, right? I mean, come on. We can laugh, and we can scoff at those comments, but I fear that there are some areas in the church at large, where we have created lawnmower Christianity that's more concerned with our comfort than our calling. See, lawnmower Christianity wants you to be happy, not holy. Lawnmower Christianity wants to win win friends and influence people instead of making disciples. And see, our job as pastors and teachers, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip you to do the work of ministry. And we would be failing you if we did not prepare you to expect some serious challenges as you seek to follow Jesus. Now, as Paul explains, the comfort we receive presupposes that we're going to suffer. 
In the New Testament, the apostles Paul and Peter report on it in real time. Jesus himself said in all four Gospels that his followers were going to be hated by the world. That means regular Christians like you and me in every time and in every place experience suffering and trials. But God is the source of comfort. But Paul wants us to see in this passage that comfort comes to us through people. And in verse 4, we have one of very, of two very important purpose statements in this passage that we've got to get today. Verse 4 says, we receive comfort so that, here's the reason, this is the purpose, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says here, in any affliction, any affliction. That means there's nothing, there's no situation, there's nothing that you're going through, nothing that you have experienced or will experience that is outside of the realm of God's comfort. Nothing, no addiction, not divorce, not depression, not bullying, and not cancer. Nothing. See, there's no substitute for experience. Many of you here today have been through the wars of suffering, and you have the battle scars to prove it. And if that's you, can I make an appeal to you today? There are many people in this, in this church who are in their own season of suffering, and they need to see your scars. Do you know why? Because they need to know it's going to be all right. <clears throat> you are the helpers. And by sharing the comfort you've received, you will in turn make them the helpers who will do the same for others. But notice what Paul is saying here in verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now the NIV uses the phrase, uh, the sufferings will, Christ's sufferings will overflow into our lives. And it's the picture that the sufferings that Jesus endured are allowed to reach and to touch his followers. That also means that the comfort Jesus provides overflows into our lives. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, he shares a similar perspective about suffering. It's Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In his death, There is a greater dimension to your relationship with Jesus as well as a greater experience of his power as we share in his sufferings. Now listen, there's some mystery there. I don't fully understand it. But Paul is communicating here that there is a sense of solidarity, a sense of unity, a sense of togetherness that we have with Jesus. But Paul says that we share in Christ's sufferings. That means that the sufferings we experience as Christians, they're not random. They're not meaningless. 
And this is so important. It's the idea that as we pass along the comfort that we've received to others, that this is one of the most powerful ways God turns what was meant for evil into good. We get help so we can give help. One of the beautiful things that you see as your kids get a bit older is the friendships that they form and that that begin to go deeper. You see them hanging out at other kids' homes, and they also begin to build relationships with with those parents, and it's it's a beautiful thing. I think it's awesome. One of my best friends growing up is, is Clay Pullen. Now, you may not know him, but you see his artwork every week. He designed many of the New Life graphics you see, New Life logos, T-shirts, posters. And in high school, I was like an adopted son of the Pullen family. I was at their home almost every weekend. Uh, Sometimes I was at their home during the week for for dinners. But that connection took on a, a greater importance in my life when my father passed away my junior year of high school. And Clay's father, Bill Pullen, was a stabilizing force for me. He became like a, like a father figure for me during that time. Bill was a great guy, super successful, but he never talked about his accomplishments, and he was never arrogant. He never, ever talked it down to me. And one of the tangible ways that he expressed his humility was in conversation. See, he had a genuine interest in what I had to say as a 16-year-old kid. A few years ago, I had a chance to spend some time with Bill, just me and him. He had survived lung cancer, uh, but was now facing brain cancer and a very invasive and dangerous surgery that sadly he would not survive. But in our last conversation, uh, Bill shared his concern about the upcoming surgery. He He was nervous about it. He shared his concern about his family, but he also shared about his concern about his relationship with God. I had the privilege to encourage him with the gospel and remind him that he is a son of God by the grace of God. And I consider it one of the greatest gifts of my life to be able to offer comfort to Bill, someone who had comforted me and been in my corner all those years ago. Suffering and trials are coming for all of us. But remember, it doesn't stop there. Remember what Paul says, that God is the father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. God gives us the help that we need in that moment or that season. By God's grace, we get to share that with others who are also suffering. See, that's the way of the kingdom. We pass on what we've received. And that's why God's word to new life this year, organic, is so important. We all need shared life. It is rooted in Jesus, and we need to be connected to each other. Earlier, you heard in the uh, announcements about the upcoming um, Discovering New Life class and the upcoming uh, Go meeting to get connected um, to a life group. And I want to encourage you to please take advantage of these connection opportunities because you will never get to share the comfort you received or the comfort or get the comfort that you need just by coming to church on Sundays 2.1 times a month. We need each other. We need each other. So far, we've talked about the source of comfort. We just talked about the purpose of comfort. 
let's, let's talk about the result of comfort, verses seven, verses 7 through 10. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. <clears throat> for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. <clears throat> the first thing that comes a result of comfort is unshakable hope. Unshakable hope. <clears throat> biblical hope, as we heard a few weeks ago from Pastor Tim. It's not just happy thoughts. It's not just being optimistic. But it's rooted. Biblical hope is rooted in God's character. The Father of mercies. And it's rooted in God's action his faithfulness, his track record. He is the God who comforts us in all our afflictions. And some of you might say, but how can he say that our hope for you is unshaken? I mean, isn't that a, a bit grandiose, Paul? I mean, you seem a little bit overconfident there. Why can he say it that way? Because mm, he's making his case from experience. Paul gives a vivid, honest account of what suffering and comfort looks like and it's almost as if here Paul's giving us a case study of the theology from the previous section. In verse 8, he says, for we do not want you to be unaware. Notice here, Paul is not trying to minimize what he went through. It's weird. It's on, on the contrary. It's almost like he's broadcasting this. It's almost like he's booting up the phone and pulling up Facebook, Twitter, Instagram all at the same time and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. He shares an experience that was so traumatic, so overwhelming, so beyond what he could even handle that he literally thought that he was going to die. In fact, he uses the phrase, the sentence of death, and it's a phrase that has the idea of a governmental authority handing out the death sentence. One of the best examples of <clears throat> someone just getting real with God is the movie Signs. It's one of my favorite movies. <clears throat> it's a quick overview. In the movie, Mel Gibson plays Graham Hess, who is a former priest uh, who lives with his son Morgan, his daughter Bo, and his younger brother Merrill on an isolated farm on a, on a, uh, in, in rural Pennsylvania, about 50 miles from Philadelphia. <clears throat> now, Hess has lost his faith, and in the process, he's given up the, the priesthood after his wife died in a terrible traffic accident. And the ongoing bitterness that he has from that experience is a key part of the plot. Now, in the movie, there are all kinds of uh, strange things that keep happening. There's uh, this thing with crop circles. Uh, there's interference with communications. And then it's revealed that there really are aliens trying to take over the earth. Now, the genius in this movie is that it's not about aliens. See, this movie is about suffering and the problem of evil. And towards the end of the movie, 
the entire family retreats to the cellar of their farmhouse. Uh, the aliens are on their property. They're coming in the house. And they, they, they retreat down there hoping to just, just, just to hide out and not be noticed and survive. <clears throat> and it's in this scene where, where Gibson's character gets real in the face of another tragic loss. Watch this scene. We don't have his medicine. Don't be afraid, Morgan. We'll slow this down together. Feel my chest. Feel it moving in and out. Breathe like me. Breathe like me. Come on. Dream this. Stay with me. I know it hurts. Be strong, baby. It'll pass. afraid, Morgan. Feel my chest. Breathe with me. Together. The air is going in our lungs. <sighs> Together. We're the same. We're the same. Pours out years of frustration and anger and pain over losing his wife. When he finally pours it out, that's when his faith returns. And that's when the breakthrough happens. Mm. Have you ever been that real with God? From your gut with that raw honesty? See, God wants the mess. All of it. The depression, the sadness, the bitterness, the pain, 
the rejection. He wants all of it. You know why? Because he can handle it. See, there's something very attractive about authenticity. In fact, people are starving for it. Jordan Peterson is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He's a clinical psychologist. Excuse me. And if you haven't heard about him yet, you will. Uh, The New York Times columnist David Brooks describes him as, quote, the most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now. He's the author of the bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, which has sold approximately 3 million copies in less than a year. The book tour tour is reaching stadium crowds of up to 100,000 people. He has more than 2 million followers on YouTube and a million followers on Twitter. And here's what's interesting. His audience is overwhelmingly made up of young men, most of whom for the first time are hearing a positive, challenging, and inspiring message for the first time in their lives. This is from an article from Christianity Today. His appeal to Christians is pervasive. Peterson is a charismatic speaker who offers clear guidance on morals and manners. For example, rule number one, stand up straight. Rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. He takes evil seriously. and This is what he says. You're bad enough as other people know you, but only you know the full range of your secret transgressions, insufficiencies, and inadequacies. Now, listen, I appreciate much of what Peterson is saying. He's speaking some important truths. Here's my point. We should be owning these conversations, whether in our preaching, our Bible studies, our prayer meetings, youth, children's ministry. The church is the place where we should be able to talk about anything and everything and take these issues to the Bible. Now, there's been a lot of talk recently in the last few years about why millennials are leaving the church. All these articles, why are millennials leaving the church? Uh, You know, I'd rather talk about why the millennials that stay, why are they staying? And here's what studies are starting to show, and this is what I know from my own personal experience with talking with some millennials. Turns out they want truth, and they want to be challenged. They don't want pat answers. And anyway... On that note, on behalf of my generation, I'm sorry for how we talk down to you sometimes. Is it possible that we don't experience the power of Christ because we're not totally honest with God? I believe that many, many Christians come to a church service, they come to a church building hiding their conditions because they don't feel like they have the freedom to talk about them. See, they bought into the lie that just because they haven't seen the breakthrough in their kids right, or they, they haven't gotten that job or promotion that was promised to them, or they haven't been 100% healed yet, they bought into the lie that there's something defective about their faith, something defective about them. And what that does is it leads to shame. And one of the main elements of shame is the fear of being exposed or labeled as inadequate or not measuring up. Listen to me. That kind of shame and fear 
That is not from God. We have to get to the point where we're being completely real first with God. I mean, listen, He already knows what's on the inside. He, it's, it's God who knows our own hearts better than we do. Scripture says that He perceives our thoughts from afar. Now, in verse 9, we have the, C, the second key purpose clause of this passage where Paul gives the reason why God allowed things, these things to happen. Verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on a God who raises the dead. See, the suffering that Paul endured, that he shared so openly, happened so that he would transfer his dependence from himself to God. Now, notice, this isn't some abstract God. This is the all-powerful, majestic, miracle-working God who raises the dead. That's a God we can rely on. And verse 9 actually looks ahead to later in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, where Paul, sharing about a time where he's he's going through some challenges, he says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, Paul's naming it. He's not hiding it. And God, it's like he's saying to him, I'm not going to remove this thorn, son. Because my grace is sufficient for you. Because in your weakness, my power is displayed. It's made perfect. It's made complete. Paul Paul goes even further than being transparent. He's bragging about it. He's boasting about it. Why? So Christ can be magnified. So he can get the glory. One of the reasons we don't see more of God's miraculous power is we're too focused on the things of this world. Many of them good things. Many of them are God's blessings. And I think one of the things God wants us to do with this text today is to examine ourselves. Can I ask you, where are you placing your trust? Are you trusting in your health or your good looks? Are you trusting in the fact that you're That you're debt-free and financially independent? Are you trusting in your your, your family connections, in your network? You see, those are all good things, but they are fleeting things. Sometimes here today, gone tomorrow. Paul says that he felt that he had received the sentence of death, so he wouldn't rely on himself but on God who raises the dead. Please, please. I implore you today, get your heart and trust issues sorted out. Paul is open. He's very transparent here in verses 8 and 9, but he doesn't stay here. And please hear me. This is so, so important. He doesn't glorify the trials or the suffering. See, he's not trying to get any value or identity from it. And in verse 10, he transitions to testify about God's deliverance. Paul connects the unshakable hope from verse 7 to God's power to deliver. Here in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
not only did God deliver him, but Paul puts out, out a declaration here in this letter for the church for all time to know that God will deliver us too. Paul is saying, God did it once. I know he's going to do it again because that's who he is and that's what he does. One last story as I close. On May 27, 2017, journalist Anthony Bresnikin shared on Twitter about a life-changing encounter that he had with Mr. Rogers in 1996. He tells a story of how he was uh, struggling in college. He was struggling with loneliness, uh, discouragement. He was going through a, a, a personal loss that he didn't feel like he could talk about. But walking out of his dorm room one morning, he heard the familiar music in the hallway. Won't you be my neighbor? The TV was playing in an empty common room, and he stood mesmerized. He goes on to say that he felt like a cool rag had been put on his hot head. Several days later, Bresnigan got out of the uh, elevator, riding down to the lobby of one of the buildings there on campus, and the door opens, and who's standing there? Mr. Rogers. And this is his account. I thought I was hallucinating for a moment, but there he stood a slim old man in a big coat and scarf, eyes twinkling behind his glasses, a small case clasped between his hands in front of him. I stepped aboard the elevator, staring. He nodded at me. I nodded back. Chances are he could sense a geek out coming. <laughs> but I kept it together. Almost. As we stepped into the lobby, I hovered for a moment, building my courage. Then finally, Mr. Rogers, I don't mean to bother you, but I, I just wanted to say thanks. He smiled patiently, and I imagine this sort of thing happened to him about every 10 feet. Then he said, did you grow up as one of my television neighbors? He opened his arms, lifting his satchel in the air and beckoning in me and said, it's good to see you again, neighbor. After some small talk, he then opened the student union door to say goodbye. And that's when I blurted out in kind of a rambling gush that I'd stumbled on the show again recently at a time when I really needed it. He listened there in the doorway, and when I ran out of words, I just said, so thanks for that again. Mr. Rogers nodded. He undid his scarf and motioned to the window where we sat down on the ledge. He said, do you want to tell me what's upsetting you? So I sat, and I told him the truth. I told him about my grandfather who had just died. Pap was one of the few good things I had. I guess my grandfather had been my version of a helper in hard times, and I was still looking for him, even though I knew he was gone. I like to think I didn't go on and on, but pretty soon Mr. Rogers was telling me about his grandfather in a small boat the old man bought for him when he was a young man. Mr. Rogers also still missed his grandfather, still wished he was there when he needed him. You'll never stop missing the people you love, Mr. Rogers told me. His grandfather had given Mr. Rogers a small boat as a reward for something he'd worked hard to accomplish. He didn't have either now his grandfather or the boat, but he had that work ethic, that knowledge and perseverance the old man encouraged with his gift. Those things never go away, Mr. Rogers said. At the end, I just said thank you for about the 13th time, and I apologize for making him late. Mr. Rogers just smiled and said in his slow, gentle voice, Sometimes you're right where you need to be. See, in that moment, Mr. Rogers was a real-life helper. He was able to, in person, comfort Anthony with the comfort that he himself had received. 
See, Mr. Rogers touched and comforted millions of people because they felt like he understood the challenges and hurts of life in a way that no one else could. See, for many, he was the man of all comfort. As great as Mr. Rogers was, this man of all comfort should point us to the God of all comfort. Speaking of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Mm. Jesus knows the pain you're going through. But Jesus didn't suffer just so we could share in his comfort. He suffered so we could share in his resurrection life. He gave his life as a perfect, complete sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In just a few moments, we're going to have a a time of of ministry. And if you've never experienced that kind of comfort, if you've never experienced that kind of abundant life, it can be yours today. See, God has been so good to us at New Life Church. See, this church is full of people who have received God's comfort. Remember, we get help so we can give help. Because when you find the helpers, you'll know there's hope.